Isn't it nice to get away from Britain sometimes and go somewhere sunny? I don't mean on holiday, sadly, but in podcasting. This week, we're heading for Australia. We're taking a break from asking how weird, eccentric, still stuck in the Second World War Britain prepared for nuclear war. And instead, we're going down under to ask how the Australians did it. After all, Australia wasn't expected to be directly involved in any nuclear war. All the venom and death and poison was reserved for the Northern Hemisphere, thank you very much. But nonetheless, the Australian government still issued civil defence booklets, telling their citizens how to prepare for nuclear attack. We'll take a look at those booklets, as well as some issued by protesters against the government, and we'll see what Hollywood had to say about how Australia would endure nuclear war. This is The Atomic Hobo, and I'm Julie McDowell. excited to get a copy of Australia's official booklet on how to defend your home from nuclear attack. In this podcast we've looked so far at various other countries, how they prepared for nuclear war. We've looked at Ireland, New Zealand and West Germany so far, as well as Britain obviously. And we've examined the funny little booklets and snippets of useless advice they dished out to the citizens. So I thought it was time we looked at Australia. But I have to tell you, I was a bit disappointed when I had Australia's um, official government advice booklet because it was really just a copy of Britain's ridiculed Protect and Survive booklet. The Australian one is called Nuclear Weapons, Their Effects and Your Protection. And the front cover shows a city skyline with a sickly yellow sky and a black mushroom cloud rising over the buildings. Well, the front cover then is far braver than anything Britain ever came up with. Protect and Survive shows a nice wholesome family standing inside a circle. The circle of course representing the lovely nice protection you'll receive if you would only be obedient and follow government advice. But Australia is far more blunt. They give us a an unnatural unhealthy looking yellow sky with a big giant mushroom cloud looming over the city. Okay, that's nice, I like it. Looks like it's going to be very blunt, very honest. Some good old plain talking, no nonsense here. And the booklet does say in the introduction that it seeks to dispel, quote, the more hysterical or exaggerated notions held by many people. But when you look inside, it's really much the same as the useless advice of Protect and Survive. However, there is one big difference, of course, and let's not be too harsh on the Australians here. Although the advice on protecting your home and yourself is largely the same as Protect and Survive's advice, 
the Australian booklet has a lot more detail on what a nuclear bomb would actually do to you. And it gives a lot of technical information. And it has a section on the different types of attack Australia might see, such as manned bombers, pilotless vehicles released from land or ships, guided bombs, ballistic missiles and saboteurs. It talks about the different factors which would affect a nuclear attack's results, such as whether the blast is on the ground or in the air, how many bombs are sent to Australia and what their yield is, and of course the weather conditions on the day, and of course the all-important warning. The outcome would vary depending on how much warning you had. Infamously, Britain would expect a four-minute warning at the worst. We could assume that Australia would get far more, or perhaps they wouldn't need any warning of impending attack because they might not have any attack at all. Instead of suffering a nuclear explosion, Australia might be suffering the secondary effects of a nuclear attack such as economic collapse, nuclear winter, collapse of society, that kind of thing. You know, the easy stuff. So when you read this booklet, it's clear it was aimed at adults. Protect and Survive often seems like it was aimed at school children. It looks very childish, has lots and lots of very basic pictures. The text is very easy to read, it's not dense, it's not full of technical language. Whereas this Australian booklet, credit where it's due, is very clearly aimed at intelligent adults. The audience here are not being patronised. But even so, a lot of the material is borrowed from Protect and Survive. And when it stops being technical and detailed, it starts blurting out the usual nonsense that you can survive nuclear war by unscrewing your kitchen door and propping it against the wall, or by hiding under the stairs. In fact, these sections are so close to what you'll find in Protect and Survive that the booklet at the end actually thanks Her Majesty's Stationery Office. So there was, of course, a lot of sharing going on between these two booklets. But let's remind ourselves that Australia would probably not be a target, as Britain would have been. Britain, of course, was often described as America's unsinkable aircraft carrier. We were chock full of targets in the Cold War, whether they were military, industrial or civilian. So we would have been attacked mercilessly and relentlessly. There was a target around every corner in Britain, at the end of every street, across every road there was a, there was a target. And of course, in a geographically small country like Britain, that means that there isn't any, any chance of escape. You can't flee to the countryside because any point in the countryside is going to be relatively near a target. And once you take fallout into account, it's quite easy to assume that Britain would be blanketed in fallout if it was an all-out nuclear war. So the Protect and Survive advice was silly for Britain because nowhere is safe, so therefore no kitchen door propped against the wall is safe. But maybe this advice would have worked in Australia because Australia compared to Britain is huge. And even though much of its landscape famously is quite inhospitable, you could in theory flee from a nuclear blast or fallout if you had sufficient warning and supplies and transport you could, in theory, get away from it. Although you might then be facing the terrors of the outback and all those scary spiders. But in theory, Australia is vast enough, compared to Britain, that the old advice of building yourself a little shelter out of doors and sandbags might just work. 
it would be possible to evacuate in Australia. One of my previous podcasts was on the impossibility of evacuating in Britain. But in a nutshell, in Britain, there's no point evacuating because blast and fallout are surely going to reach every nook and cranny in the country. Not so in Australia, which is geographically vast. So although I've ridiculed the Australian advice for being a copy, often a literal copy of Protect and Survive, let's look at it from the other perspective. Maybe that ridiculous Protect and Survive advice would actually have worked. That door that you've propped up against the wall and piled with bin bags full of laundry and sandbags and some suitcases filled with books? Well, maybe that would work. Because there isn't going to be a direct nuclear attack on you in Australia, probably. All you need to do is hunker down to escape some fallout, which may or may not be drifting past the country or drifting over the country. You might just have to hunker down for a day or two until the worst of it passes. It might just have worked. But of course, what the door propped against the wall doesn't do is protect you from all the secondary effects of a nuclear attack such as the breakdown in the economy. If there is an all-out nuclear war and most of the Northern Hemisphere is turned to dust, then of course that's going to affect everyone else, especially a country like Australia, which is a wealthy country, and I assume does a lot of trade with other wealthy countries. Well, if we've all been knocked out, then a lot of Australia's trade might be dented. So the economy could collapse. Perhaps they're importing a lot of food, um, a lot of medicines, a lot of other products. They've gone now because their trading partners have gone. So would Australia see a lot of shortages in essential food and medicine? And what about the psychological impact? Terror and bereavement and panic amongst the population. What has happened to everyone in the north? And are we safe down here? So yes, Australia would be subject to a hell of a lot of the secondary um, impact of nuclear war. Nonetheless, section six of the booklet is called, in big bold capitals, there will be survivors. It goes on to say, Australia is fortunate. In the event of global nuclear war, we would not have the risk that Northern Hemisphere countries have of being at the centre of conflict or being blanketed with fallout. It also points out, as we've just said, that they have a huge landmass at their disposal and that gives you space into which you can flee, which also means the country's resources are relatively spread out. Or, given sufficient warning, they could be relatively spread out. They could evacuate um, hospitals, factories, etc., or population, of course, into um, those vast empty spaces of Australia. Again, allowing for proper supplies. I hear it gets quite hot in Australia. Now, of course, it's not unusual that Australia might have borrowed from the British in setting out their nuclear advice. The two countries obviously have a close relationship, Uh, So much so that Britain used Australia to conduct its nuclear tests. The Americans used the Pacific Islands and the Soviets made use of the vast empty spaces of Siberia and Kazakhstan. Britain used Australia, conducting 12 major nuclear tests there in the 50s and early 60s. These were spread across three sites, Maralinga, the Montebello Islands and Emu Field. Maralinga was the main site and when testing there finished in 1964, the British government mounted Operation Hercules, which was supposed to clean up the site. 
This was, however, a limited operation and was followed two years later by Operation Brumby. And that was a far more stringent clean-up operation. And it saw the 21 pits of radioactive waste which we'd left there, sealed with massive concrete lids. But arguments went on and on over the years between the Australians and the UK about whether Maralinga was now sufficiently safe and clean. And according to some articles in the Times, in 1984, the authorities in Australia admitted that the local Aborigine population had been contaminated by these nuclear tests. It was also 1984 when a Mr John Burke, a former RAF technician who worked on the tests, revealed that he had found the bodies of four dead Aborigines after a secret British nuclear test. Mr Burke revealed this as he was dying from cancer, which he said was the result of the radiation exposure during those tests. I got this from the archives of the Times, the the London Times newspaper. Um, I don't want to speak more about it here as it's a huge topic and there simply isn't room for it in this podcast episode. Perhaps we'll cover it um, later, but there's plenty out there if you want to look at the nuclear tests, Britain's nuclear tests, and what's being done or isn't being done for those who were present at the tests. Um, So let's go back to our topic, how Australia prepared for nuclear war. So we've seen the official government advice, which stressed that you can survive nuclear war, and after an attack, there will be survivors. At the same time, of course, as always, as in every country, or at least in every free country, protesters were able to issue booklets and pamphlets of their own, giving their own warnings and contradicting the government. I have here a booklet called... What will happen to Alice if the bomb goes off? Alice, of course, refers to Alice Springs in Australia. This was a 1985 booklet and it was published by two bodies, the Medical Association for the Prevention of War and Scientists Against Nuclear Arms. And the booklet is about an imaginary nuclear attack on Alice Springs. It looks at an attack from the Asian part of the USSR, which is aimed at the defence establishment at Pine Gap in Alice Springs. So let's take a look at what this booklet said, what would happen to Alice. Firstly, the booklet is far more accessible and reader-friendly than the government one we discussed. It contains cartoons, although I'm aware of my own hypocrisy in praising cartoons here for making it accessible and reader-friendly and making sure that you can understand what's in it. And yet I condemn such things when they come from the government. The government should be serious and full of facts, not cartoons. So that does sound like hypocrisy, but I think it's because we can expect and should expect different things and different approaches from the government and from campaign groups and protesters. By all means, let the campaign groups have their cartoons and their more informal approach, but the government should be grim and serious and laden with facts. So yes, it's quite right that they both have different approaches. So what would happen to Alice? Um, The the text is very spaced out, very easy to read, little short snappy paragraphs and lots of pictures and cartoons scattered throughout it. And when they ask what will happen to Alice, 
They also use a very clever technique of naming names, of specifically naming local areas that people will recognise. And that makes it all seem, of course, very close and very real. Uh, Take this, for instance. Everything flammable within 10 kilometres of Pine Gap would catch fire. This includes the White Gums Estate, part of the airport road and Stewart Highway, a section of Larapinta Drive, the ranger station at Simpsons Gap, and all scrub and animal life in that 10 kilometre radius. Now, that's clever. That technique is very good. It pins the horror to real places, actual road names, estates that people will recognise, districts that everyone's heard of, or everyone in Australia at least. And then, for good measure, bringing the poor little animals into it at the end. Now, compare that to the bland, anonymous stuff that the government churn out. There aren't any specific place names in the government booklet. Of course, because that booklet was aimed at everyone. In the event of nuclear war, or with nuclear war drawing close, that would have been issued to all households, or printed in the newspaper so that everyone could read it. And it had to be anonymous, so that everyone could feel that it was relevant to them. They couldn't tailor it to every region. That would be far too time-consuming, far too expensive. But that neutral, bland, anonymous approach means that the advice and the information from the other side can have a bit more clout because it can zoom in on local areas and bring names and character into it. It can also zoom in on areas of expertise. As this was printed by doctors and scientists, they can talk at length and with expertise on radiation sickness and psychological breakdown and nuclear winter. They're scientists and they're doctors, so quite naturally they know a lot about that. Whereas the government advice, again, it's all bland and it's all general. But if you didn't like the view from the government or the scientists, what about Hollywood? They had their own version of Australia after nuclear war. And it came complete with Gregory Peck and Ava Gardner. I'm referring, of course, to On the Beach, which is, of course, based on the novel of the same name by Neville Shute and was then made as a film in 1959. It's set in Australia, Australia after nuclear war, And yeah, everything is fine, it's sunny, people are having drinks on the veranda, everyone's going about their normal business. And yet, there's been an all-out nuclear war. Ah, but it was in the Northern Hemisphere, of course. It was the usual suspects, wasn't it? Us idiots in NATO against those idiots in the Soviet Union. Nothing to do with Australia. So everything's okay down under then? Everything's fine? Well, not quite. The novel and film tell us that the war in the Northern Hemisphere had been so vicious, so all-consuming, that it has thrown up appalling amounts of fallout. And that deadly fallout is slowly drifting across the whole world. It is killing everyone as it moves, and yes, it will eventually reach Australia. As the fallout drifts over the globe, One by one, all the surviving, innocent countries are blanketed by the stuff and snuffed out. I won't reveal spoilers, although, come on, you know how it ends. But I will talk about one scene which has always stuck with me. 
I'm not sure if it's in the film, but it's certainly in the book. The book, of course, is more powerful, as always. And when it becomes obvious in Australia that there is no hope and that the radiation will eventually reach them and kill every single person and every animal in the country, even all the bad spiders, the government begin issuing suicide pills. That's to spare the population a slow death of radiation sickness. If anyone's been watching the recent Chernobyl drama, they will know what a death from radiation sickness can look like. The vomiting and the loss of hair and the liquefying of the organs, it doesn't bear thinking about. So the government, to spare the people that, begin issuing suicide pills. The population are told when and how to collect them and queues begin forming at local chemists when the terrible time comes. The drug can be delivered by syringe if you have babies or pets who can't swallow a pill. It is, of course, horrendous. It is dreadfully sad. But issuing suicide pills like that is also utterly cold and practical. And I wondered, I couldn't help it, but I wondered if such a thing had ever been countenanced by our own government. If it had been, they surely wouldn't have told us. It would have caused panic and despair. And even if such a plan had ever been in place, well, we didn't ever slip close enough to nuclear war for such a plan to have been unveiled to us. Nonetheless, I had a look in the records to see if suicide pills had ever been mentioned in the House of Commons in relation to nuclear war. And yes, it had been. The MP Anne Cluid bravely asked in October 1984 in the House of Commons, has the Secretary of State considered issuing suicide pills to the emergency services as the government's own studies show that after a nuclear attack there will be millions of untended dying? The answer was no. And that is simultaneously heartening and terrifying. So, Australia, all the thinking was that in the Cold War, you were going to escape the worst of it. You were going to escape the melting of the eyeballs. You are going to escape your skin crisping and turning black. You are going to escape choking to death in a firestorm. And you would escape the horrible fate of being turned into nothing but a shadow on a wall. But is that an escape? At least those of us, those poor chumps in the Northern Hemisphere could maybe hope to die quickly in a nuclear war. Those in the South might face nothing but a slower death from nuclear winter, living amongst a population stricken with horror and uncertainty and anxiety and bereavement. So who has it worse, down under or up north? I'm planning another nuclear research trip. This one again is to London. I'm going to plunder the British Library, go through all its nuclear archives. This is research, of course, for my upcoming nuclear history, but I'm sure I'll wring a few podcast episodes out of all the nuclear treasure that I find in there. I'm also, while I'm there in London, going to visit the Cold War exhibition at the National Archives, which is called Protect and Survive. 
So I'll be sure to tweet from there and upload lots of pictures, um, assuming photography is allowed. But I will be tweeting about it. So do follow me on Twitter if you aren't already. My Twitter name is Julie A. McDowell. I also want to thank my patrons who donate some cash each month to support this podcast and also to support my nuclear research. My newest patron is Gary Watson and he'll be getting a free signed copy of my book and his name printed in the acknowledgement section. So thank you, Gary, for signing up. I'll also be sending out postcards from my nuclear trip and I'll make sure that I cram it full of some of the weird stuff that I find in the nuclear archives at the British Library. If you want to join my Patreon page and get these nuclear rewards, please do take a look at it. It's at patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo. And I want to thank everyone who contributes, but let me give a special shout out to Gary Watson, Arika, Lucy Stegerwald, Jonathan Abelins, Peter Mars, Yannick, Andrew Key, Sam Marco, Richard Grundy, Dave Marks, Alan Christie, Helen McHale, Douglas Greenshields, Colin McGee, Sean Milson, Brian Outlaw, Damien Ryan, Peter Lee, John Haynes, Eamon Coyle, Julie Eek, Sarah Brassington, Nick Packham, Tara Moore, Simon Reid, Laura and Rebecca Curtis-Moss, Lynette Walsh, Christopher Creva, Richard Lewis, Adam Spink, Ian McCulloch, Linda Woolnuff, Kevin Butter, Simon Allison, Sean Judge, Paul Maxwell-Walters, Wynne Grant, Ben Capper, Mary Freer, Phil Catling, Steve Sace, Claire Brennan, Paul Jonathan Viner and Gordy McNair. The list does get longer um, every every month, I think, and I am so grateful to everyone for all your help in keeping the podcast going and in supporting my nuclear research, and which will obviously help get this book written as well. So thank you everyone who contributes, thank you everyone who listens, who leaves me a review, or who shares the podcast on social media. It is true that every little does help. So I hope you've enjoyed this podcast, and I'll be back next week with another. Thank you for listening.